According to Matthew's gospel, one of the great anticipations of redemption is the messianic table, which awaits those who are given a place next to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of Israel's forefathers. This table is alluded to in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus spoke with the Roman centurion and said that many would come from east and west to recline at the kingdom's table. The question is, however, just how does one get a place at this table? How does one get a seat at the messianic banquet? Surely the Pharisees and scribes would be first in line. They are well-versed in the scriptures and obey even the most strictest set of rules. Surely the rich would have a place with all the apparent favor of God on their purses of gold. No one would question that. Others might certainly find a place. The Sadducees have as much a chance as anyone, just not as much of a chance as the Pharisees. Maybe the Qumranites, the Essenes, they've loved the kingdom so much that they've moved out of Jerusalem and are living in this God-forsaken place by the Dead Sea, all in hopes of having a holy life. Maybe the Zealots. Yeah, they're a little violent. Yeah, we don't agree with their methods. But in all their violence, they're fighting for a free Israel. As Matthew's gospel begins to unfold, we find that the Messiah's table is filled with unexpected people. Instead of feasting with the Pharisees, with the rich, with the Sadducees, and other religious elite in Israel, Jesus opens his table to sinners, tax collectors, fishermen. And as this next text that we have at hand shows, even Gentiles, outsiders, No doubt Jesus offered to bring the very same messianic table that had always been spoken of in the ancient prophets. He had not changed the table in the least. All those beautiful dishes that had been foretold were there on the table. The problem was the table seemed to be reserved for the wrong kind of people. This in part is why the Pharisees and the scribes found it difficult to accept the claims that Jesus was the Messiah. In their eyes, it was the right work for the wrong kind of people. I think at the root problem of their rejection was that they misunderstood how a person gets a seat at the table in the first place. How does one get to sit at the Messianic banquet? Kingdom seats are not reserved by being religious. Kingdom seats are not reserved by being Jewish. Kingdom seats are not even being, being reserved by being a strict moral person. A seat at the Messiah's table comes only, repeat it again, only by faith in the Messiah himself. All of the promises, all of the benefits that would come at the dawning of the kingdom come to those who trust in Jesus only. Now, Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, teach us an important lesson by giving us a glimpse into this Canaanite woman's faith. Now, the narrative of an exemplary faith is set in a surprising place. It's not set in Israel. Verse 21 says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, here Matthew's account kind of shifts. In the last section, he was talking to Pharisees from Jerusalem, the best of the best. The, the elite of the elite. And now he's walking among Gentiles of Tyre. 
It's important for you to know that this is the first and only time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus works outside of Israel. He doesn't go outside of Israel in any other place. This is the first time he intentionally steps outside of the boundaries of Israel, which makes this story all the more significant, I think. Tyre had quite the infamous reputation. They were backstabbing covenant breakers whose actions proved them to be enemies of Israel. And in the end, it earned them the judgment of God. In Isaiah 23, God says he's going to obliterate Tyre. There's going to be nothing left. And in the background, you hear the cheering Jews who have been sold to the Edomites because of their covenant breaking. Now we get to the time of Jesus's ministry and Tyre and Sidon are still populated by Gentiles, unclean outsiders. And to a Pharisaic mindset, no self-respecting Jewish Messiah would have willingly visited such places. But Jesus did. And did so intentionally. Not only was Jesus in a surprising place, but he was sought after by a surprising person. Verse 22 says, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, if you're a careful Bible reader and you've read the Bible from beginning to end, then you know that whenever you see that phrase Canaanite woman, whenever a Canaanite woman comes on the scene, typically trouble is soon to follow. Canaanite women are bad news in the Bible. One thinks of Abraham's prohibition for his son, Isaac, not to marry the Canaanite women, just in case it might put the covenant in danger by their idolatry. One thinks of Esau who married Canaanite women and brought trouble into the camp because those women were so wild and crazy that it brought grief to his parents. One thinks of Moses warning the Israelites before going into the promised land not to give their sons into marriage with the daughters of Cana, lest in their idolatry, in their infidelity, they draw the sons away from God. That was proven true eventually by the Moabite woman who, women who danced and enticed Israel to worship uh, Baal at Bel Peor, and later with Solomon's wives, many of whom were Canaanites, and led him away into idolatry and caused him to build up temples to other idols and other gods, even child sacrificing gods. And so when we see the presence of a Canaanite woman, typically it means impending faithlessness and trouble are coming. In Matthew 15, however, we see a surprising plot twist. This time, Rather than being a sign of trouble, this Canaanite woman becomes a model of faith. I just want to, I want to paint that picture for you. If you are a Jew, well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, the very first time you see Canaanite woman, your alarm bells are ringing. What is about to happen? And then by the end of the narrative, you are absolutely shell-shocked at what you read. It isn't the religious... Pharisees that respond in the type of faith they should. It isn't the priests in the temple who respond to the Messiah by faith. It's a Canaanite woman. Keep that scandal to yourself. It is through this surprising woman that Matthew teaches us what real faith looks like. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, the Jewish elite have outright rejected Jesus. 
The faith they should have, dis- have had is displayed in a very unlikely person, a Canaanite. And consistent with the rest of his gospel, Matthew shows just how Jesus came to bring a topsy-turvy kingdom. The blind see. The Pharisees are blind. Tax collectors become disciples. Lepers become clean. And guess what? Canaanite women become models of faith. While the sons of the kingdom, the Pharisees, languish outside of the kingdom due to their lack of faith. The surprising setting and the surprising Canaanite woman work together to show a surprising lesson. Only faith in Jesus grants one a seat at the kingdom's table. Only faith in Jesus. Nothing else. Not living in the promised land, not living in proximity to the temple, not being a Jew or being religious can reserve the seat. With faith, even a Canaanite woman living in the Gentile lands of Tyre and Sidon can receive grace by faith and by faith alone. In the end, this story teaches us the absolute necessity and sufficiency of faith to secure a place at the king's banquet. If faith can do such things for a Canaanite woman entire, then it can do the same for a Chinese man under a communist government, an African in Islamic Sudan, a, an Iranian living in the confines of Sharia law, and an American living in an increasingly ungodly nation. Faith in Christ alone reserves us a place at the king's feast, regardless of who we are and where we live. Matthew 15's picture of Jesus has caused several to stumble over the years of studying this text. In fact, as Moy was reading it, I heard a couple of gasps as Jesus, we got to the part where Jesus calls this woman a dog Many have stumbled over that. This, it presents this picture of this resistant, rejecting, hesitant, somewhat elitist Messiah, right? I'm not here to help Canaanites. Some have even taken it far worse to be kind of an ethnocentric slur and hence a racist Jesus. Because he's here for Israel, not for the Gentile dogs. I I sympathize with the hard reading, but I think if we can understand what's really going on behind the background, we begin to see what's really going on. The question is, is do we really see a resistant Messiah in Matthew 15? Is Jesus truly hesitant to help this Canaanite woman or is something entirely different happening? Jesus' response to the woman is certainly odd. If you've been paying close attention to Matthew, you know that Jesus was not resistant in helping a Roman centurion, a leader in the enemy army in Matthew 8. Not hesitant at all. He even said, I'll go to your house. More than willing. He wasn't hesitant when he talked to the probably two Gentile demoniacs in the land of the Gadarenes. He doesn't turn them away and say, no, I've only come to help the smelly good people. You stinky demoniacs, go back to your cave. He doesn't do that. So what we see Jesus doing is certainly odd, and it's a rarity, and it's outside of the norm of what Jesus normally does. So then, why is Jesus slow, seemingly hesitant, 
in helping this Canaanite woman? Well, knowing some of the potential background may be helpful in shedding some light on Jesus' denials to help this woman. The practice isn't observed much today, but Jewish tradition once taught that a potential convert should be turned away three times before being admitted to the faith. So if you wanted to become a Jew, you come to a rabbi, you say, I want to become a Jew. He says, go away. Come back. I want to become a Jew. Go away. Come back. I want to become a Jew. You don't understand how hard it is. Go away. If you last all three denials, you may become a Jew. What does that do? Well, it kind of weeds out those who are insincere, doesn't it? It kind of shows who's really the believing type. Who's really committed to trust in Yahweh. Now, to be fair, we don't know exactly when that tradition started, though it was probably in place at this time. But we know that Jewish readers probably have it in mind as they're reading it in Matthew's gospel. How many times does Jesus deny this woman? Three times. So the question is, I don't think Jesus is following this practice. In fact, he never really did follow that practice. You don't see him turning anyone away when they come to him. He beckons people to follow him. But maybe Matthew is borrowing that tradition of turning people away three times to show, look, us Jews have this tradition that if a person remains after three rejections, they have real faith. Well, look at this woman who has remained under three rejections, and she's not a Jew. She's a Canaanite. So what does that tell you about her faith? I think what we have here is Jesus tailor making a situation through these three rejections, so that at the end, we see the surprising truth that this Canaanite is a woman of great faith. Not mild faith, not barely faith, but great faith. Now, given the outright rejection and hostility of the Jewish leaders, Jesus is trying to show that this woman's acceptance of his identity is contrast with the Jews' dismissal of him as the Messiah. She sees him clearly. And so we see the message is this. This is a woman of sincere and resilient faith. Look at her. Be like her. In the context of Israel's rejection of Jesus, together with the Pharisees' offense toward him, John's disciples' confusion about him, and the lack of repentance in Jewish cities, this Canaanite woman's resolve to come to Jesus as the son of David, it's truly remarkable, even more ironic. Not something we would have thought would happen. And again, we're reminded that unlikely people get seats to the kingdom in unlikely ways. She endures the three rejections and in the end proves that her faith is real in contrast to the Israelite children who have no faith. How is it that this Canaanite woman is able to see Jesus for who he really is when so many in Israel remain hesitant and resistant to him? How is it that this Canaanite is able to enjoy blessings from the Messiah's table when the children of Israel willingly refuse the bread he offers? The only answer to these questions is that she sees him in faith as the son of David and ultimately enjoys a blessing from the messianic table because of her faith in him. Faith in Jesus is in and of itself the only real requirement for joining in the messianic banquet. Even if you're a Canaanite living in Tyre.
The woman first cries out, have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The first denial is seen in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Can you imagine that? You cry out after Jesus. You've heard about his amazing reputation of mercy, that he helps lepers. You know who this man is. You know what you believe in him, what you believe about him. You call out to him and he gives you the silent treatment. Doesn't even answer a word. Now, Matthew leaves no room for us to believe that maybe Jesus didn't hear her. No, he heard her and ignored her. If that's unsettling, just wait till the end of the three tests, and then you get to see what Jesus is doing here. But let that set for a moment. We have here a picture of a Jesus who, in every other instance, almost immediately answers those who cry out to him. We think of the two blind men uh, in Matthew 9 who cried out a very similar thing. Have mercy on us, son of David. And what did Jesus do? He immediately turns aside. What can I do for you? So why is Jesus silent here? Well, we don't know yet. But despite his silence, the woman continued crying out and the disciples begged him to send her off. In their eyes, this despised Canaanite woman is nothing more than a nuisance. She's crying out after his Jesus. It's annoying. Send her away. It's embarrassing. She's drawing too much attention. And then comes his second denial. She's continuing to cry out, continuing to cry out. Help me, Lord, son of David, heal my daughter. You can just hear her crying all the way to him. She comes and Jesus answers the woman's cry saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Ouch. He wasn't lying. He's not being insincere. The Old Testament promises were given to Israel first, and it was to Israel that the gospel must first be proclaimed. Jesus was sent to the children of Israel. Yes. And at this point in time, the redemption of the nations was not yet. It wouldn't come immediately. It would come only later. Jesus says as much in Matthew 10, 5 through 6. We've already studied that text when he told all his band of missionary disciples to go nowhere among the Gentiles. It's a strange command, except for the fact that he knew that Israel must receive the gospel first. The gospel by necessity was proclaimed first to the Jews and only later given to the nations. It's a part of God's plan. For now, his ministry is focused in Israel. So he's not lying to her. He has come to the house of Israel, for the sheep, the house of Israel. And yet, even hearing this, I mean, you just think about it. You, you, you've so far come to Jesus, you say, help me, Lord. Help, help my daughter. She's demon oppressed and he doesn't answer you. He ignores you. You try again. And he says, you don't qualify. How many of you would have given up at that point? Well, she doesn't. Verse 25 says that she came even closer and then knelt. And she says a very simple prayer. I can imagine tears in her eyes. Lord, help me. To this second request, you'd think, okay, Jesus' heart's got to soften at some point here. You know, this Canaanite woman crying and kneeling before him. Jesus remains just as stern. I can just imagine stone-cold face. 
It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Increased offense here. The mention of bread that he's mentioning and the reference to a table that will come in the next verse calls to mind this prophetic visions of a messianic feast. So in other words, he's saying it's not right for me to set the messianic table for the children of Israel and then allow the dogs to eat on it. The dogs will be fed at some point. The pet dogs get food at some point, but not before the children, the children eat first and then the dogs get fed. This would seem to be a definitive denial Give up, woman. He doesn't want to help you. And yet, we see this beautiful diamond of her faith because of this resistance. Here's what she says. Yes, Lord, I know. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. (laughs) She knows the Old Testament promises better than most Jews at this point. She believes that at the Messianic table, yes, it's for Israel, but nations will eat too. She gets crumbs, dog though she may be, she still can be fed by the Messiah. She doesn't come to him with any self-entitlement, not this, I deserve to be here. You have to give me this bread because you're Jesus. She doesn't come to him like that. She acknowledges that he, as the son of David, must give bread to the children first. True, she is an outsider. She has no claim to the Old Testament promises of God. She's outside and a stranger of the covenant. And yet, if she just might have a morsel, just throw me the scraps, Jesus. Let me have the crumbs. Remarkable picture of this woman who is kneeling before her Savior. She has persevered through Jesus' silence. His statement that he has come only for the sheep of Israel, and a direct statement that the children's bread should not be given to dog dogs. She has endured more obstacles than any others have up to this point to believe in Jesus, and yet her faith remains. She is resolved, resolved, resolute. There's nowhere else she can go. She is resolved in her commitment to find help at the feet of Christ. You shut the door, she comes to the back door. You shut the back door, she comes to the window. You shut the window, she digs a hole through the roof. She must have Jesus. And as a result, she, re- she receives one of only two condemnations of great faith in Matthew's gospel, both of which were given to Gentiles, not Jews. I think looking at the narrative from this perspective, Matthew highlights the importance of faith in relation to Jesus. This seemingly spiritually weak Canaanite woman is stronger than all the Pharisees combined in her faith. Great faith is not found in Israel in Jesus' day. Great faith is found in this despicable land of Tyre with this probably single Canaanite mother. 
In a context of faithless responses to Jesus, the Canaanite woman stands as a surprising contrast. The Canaanite woman's faith is resilient despite the obstacles, while the Jews remain faithless. Though they, due to their Israelite ancestry, face far fewer obstacles. Can you imagine how easy it should have been for them to see Jesus as the Messiah? And to enjoy his blessings. They are part of the people of God. They are Abraham's offspring. It would be so easy to come in and sit at the table. And yet, as close as they are, they are further off than this dog waiting under the table for the crumbs. This great topsy-turvy kingdom, the dog is full and the children are starving because of their lack of faith. The Canaanite woman is the hero of this story with her resilient faith as she receives mercy. I just want to apply her resiliency to our own lives. One must wonder how our own faith holds up under the face of, in the face of obstacles. I I don't of course want to bring us into any kind of embarrassing evaluation of the size of our faith. I don't want to shame anyone by talking about size of faith. We already talked about size of faith doesn't matter in the Bible. Faith is faith. Right? It's not really a matter of how big or how little it is. It really is just faith in Jesus that is honored at the end of the day. We should long to have more faith, definitely. But we're not talking about size of faith. Instead, we are intending to ask how our faith holds up in hindrances. In other words, it's not a question of how much faith you have, but whether you have a faith that keeps going even when things don't get, easy, don't get easier. I've been a pastor for a while now. I have been with lots of friends who have professed Jesus and professed faith only to see them completely turn away the moment hardship and obstacles and hindrances come into view. Just completely walk away. They pray, God is silent. They ask, God seems to say no or not yet. Still the hindrances pile on. Pandemics, downsizes, chronic health problems, death of a family member, marital strife, troubling news, fearful predictions, and so on and so on. And how many have completely abandoned their trust at Christ in Christ at such points? My job's hard. But we turn away from Jesus. The money's low. So we pack up and go home. My friends, such abandonment is more than a mere Job-like questioning of what God's doing. Job was very faith-filled in his questions of God. He still clung to his God that he did not understand. He still loved his God, though he did not fully get and felt like God maybe even had done him wrong. It's, it's more than a quivering cry of confusion in the midst of suffering. That, that is actually faith. Questions, confusions, struggles, those are all the normal experiences of a growing faith. By contrast, a, faithful li- a faithless, faithless life is one like the rich young ruler who comes later in Matthew's gospel. He initially desires to inherit eternal life. The cost of following Jesus, though, Makes him leave, go away sad. It's too hard. It costs too much. It is the one whose commitment to Jesus remains good only as long as there are no hindrances that reveals a missing faith. My friends, 2020 has been a great sifter of faith. 
Great sifter of faith. Has it brought you more to your knees before your Lord? Or has it caused you to pack up and go home? Have some of you spiritually shut off the valve of that water that gives you so much drink and refreshment just because things are too hard. It's too hard to drink from the well. There's trees in the way, logs in the way, sick people in the way. I have to hop, skip, and jump to get to the well. It's too hard. So I'm going to sit here and thirst to death. My friends, many of us have done that. Things got hard, so we shut off. Our relationship with Jesus died in many ways. My friends, I praise God for 2020 if it did nothing but show you that you have that propensity to do that. It's easy to come to Jesus when there's no obstacles. That's easy. To say, I want to believe in Jesus, to pray a prayer, to do all these things. That's easy. It's hard to cling to him when it feels like he's turning you away. It's hard to turn to him, to come to his hand when it feels like his hand is the one that has dealt you fatal blows. There's a beautiful song you guys should look up called, Though You Slay Me. And it's a whole song about this man's faith who's coming to God, though God might kill him. I will come to you, though you might slay me. Would you still fall before Jesus, though he called you a dog? But that is the type of faith that is required to come to the messianic table. A faith that is resilient. Not big, not massive. We don't know if she knew the Hebrew text at all. We don't know how much she knew about the Old Testament. So we're not talking about this big religious knowledge of the scriptures and everything. We're talking about this faith in the Messiah that's simple but resilient, simple but steady, simple but secure. That's what we're talking about. The kind of faith that says, it hurts, but I cling to him, though he slay me. My friends, when you face obstacles, do those obstacles cause you to turn from Jesus? Or do they motivate you to come closer and fall lower? It is because of the woman's persistent, and that's the, I think the emphasis of this text, persistent cry for mercy despite the obstacles that Jesus says, he breaks. Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it to you as you desire. My friend, it's a new year, so I believe that my Narnia references get set back to zero, so I'm going to start with one this year. <laughs> In C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian, Reepicheep the Mouse, this is a big old mouse. Some of you may not like mice, but he's a cute little fella in the, in the story. He gets his tail whopped off in the middle of a story, in the middle of a battle. And he comes to Aslan, begging Aslan to heal his tail. Aslan resists, giving reasons why he shouldn't heal it. Yeah, tail makes you prideful. Yeah, you think too much about yourself. 
And yet, despite this initial resistance, the mice all gang together and they are resilient in their commitment. They will chop off all their tails if Reepicheep can't have his tail. They, they must have mercy from Aslan for Reepicheep's tail. And Aslan resists and they are resilient. And he resists and they're resilient. Finally, he says at seeing their commitment, you have conquered me. He then happily heals Reepicheep's tail. In a way, we see a very similar thing happening in Matthew 15. The woman wins mercy. Despite Jesus's initial resistance, her resi- with her resilient faith in Jesus. Jesus's words, oh woman, great is your faith, be it as you desire, are like Aslan's joyful declaration, you have conquered me. This, of course, is not to say that we can overturn the will of Christ. I want to be very clear. Had Jesus not willed, truly not willed, to heal this woman's daughter, the daughter would have remained in demonic oppression with absolutely no hope. Nevertheless, we get the sense that Jesus willed to be conquered by this woman's faith. He wanted to. My friends, we do similar things with our kids sometimes, don't we? We set up initial resistance to our kids, knowing that we want to give them good things. Some of us are easy pushovers, but the rest of us may just like to see the joy of our kids conquer our initial resistance. Jesus steps up this resistance, willing that she would plow through. Jesus says no, willing that she wouldn't take it for an answer. Jesus says, I'm not here for you, hoping, knowing, planning that she would keep coming nonetheless. My friends, these obstacles reveal the strength of our faith. He is the king. He is the powerful king. And he cannot be conquered against his will. And yet, even this powerful king bends for a Canaanite woman who wholeheartedly trusts him. You realize what he did. I've come for Israel. He was absolutely right He did not have to heal her daughter. It is not expected of him. He is the Jewish Messiah. And yet he breaks the lines. Or rather, he allows her to break the lines by her faith. My friends, do you have a faith that conquers God's heart? Or at his initial resistance, his initial hesitancy, do you turn away thinking of him as a bad God? My friends, what's funny is that we start this story thinking Jesus is mean, ethnocentric, possibly racist. And we end seeing a good-hearted king who claps at this woman's resilient faith that has won him because he willed to be won by her. And so as we see in this text, the primary focus is not on a rejecting Messiah, but on the woman's resilient faith. 
Everything Jesus does in this passage works to reveal great faith. Great faith rests on Jesus regardless of the obstacles. Great faith does not peter out despite the, when the hindrances present themselves. Great faith falls before Jesus, perseveres in its plea for his mercy, and stays there in neediness. Doesn't just go away. So we've talked about what Jesus was doing. I hope you have a little better picture of what Jesus is trying to show here. I think it's worth the time asking exactly what makes faith resilient so that we can see if we have that resilient faith. And here I will offer three observations from the woman's example of a resilient faith. The first point is that a resilient faith focuses on who Jesus really is. From the beginning, the woman definitively proclaims who she believes Jesus is. He is the Lord. He is the son of David. Her declaration of Jesus as the son of David is a royal title generally given in reference to the Messiah. To her, this is the Davidic king. This is the long-awaited promised one who would come to save Israel and by consequence restore blessing to all the nations. What have the religious elite of Judea called him so far? Nazarene. Carpenter. Servant of Beelzebul. But this Canaanite woman sees him as king and thereby as her only hope. Only hope. Continuing to refer to him as Lord, even as he remains silent, she kneels before him. She breaks herself down and prostrates herself before him because she sees him for who he really is. And so she remained intent. My friends, if Jesus really is the king of the universe who's come to restore blessing and reconciliation with God, where else can you go? The woman knew that despite even Jesus was telling her to go away, where else am I going to go? I have nowhere else to go. I must have you or nothing. Resilient Faith, true faith, is one that remains Christ-centered from beginning to end. It is a faith that fixes his eyes firmly on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and refuses to seek help elsewhere. When obstacles come, when hindrances arise, when trials rock us, do we continue to look to King Jesus, or do we, like so many others, turn away discouraged by the hardships, hoping that salvation will come through another savior. Maybe next time God will send a Canaanite Messiah. Second, resilient faith is wholeheartedly dependent on mercy. Wholeheartedly dependent on mercy. The Canaanite woman models a laser-like focus on Jesus' ability to help. She is an altogether needy woman. And hence the perfect model of what a disciple should be. She cries out, literally shouting out after him, help me, help me. She moves from crying to kneeling and then begging, Lord, help me. Help me is a simple prayer. But it's a prayer of faith. There's not a whole lot of words here. A lot of big religious jargon in this text. Not even an amen. Just Lord, help me. And this woman with her simple petition 
for help does two things. It acknowledges that she needs it. That's number one. It acknowledges that he alone can help. That's number two. Do you realize the kind of faith that we're called to is the kind of faith that knows that we need Jesus and also knows that we need Jesus, not anything else. So we have need and we have him. Those are the two aspects of our faith. Resilient faith is the one that is persistent in its cry to Jesus. Help me. You may be facing a number of obstacles to experiencing a growing faith. 2020 may still have lingering effects in your life. You may have regrets. You may have doubts. You may have distractions, difficulties, pain, grief, and all these things. You may be looking ahead into the future. You may be trying to look and anticipate what's to come. How bad is it actually going to get? Is it going to be anywhere comparable to 2020? Is my life over? You may have all these things in your way. You may not know how to even pray this 2021. January 1st might have come and you might have just said, I don't even know what to say to God. Lord, help me may be the most fitting thing you can say to him right now. That's a prayer he's certain to hear. Because it's a prayer for mercy. And it's wholeheartedly dependent on his mercy. Do you know you need him? The second question is, do you know you need him? So do you know you need, 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 not could use, not would be helped by, but need. Then do you know that you need him? Nothing else. Finally, resilient faith is, is always accompanied by humility and gratitude. Notice again that the woman made no claim of entitlement on the Lord's grace. She knows that if she receives anything from the Messiah's table, even a crumb, it will be because of unwarranted grace. She knows that as a Canaanite, she has no inherent right to eat at the table. No one does. You don't have a place at the table because you're a somewhat good person. Sorry to burst your bubble. You don't reserve a right at the table because you want a participation trophy in your baseball tournament. You don't get a place at the table because you have a bank account that's over 75000 No one deserves what they get from the king's table. She doesn't demand a seat. She doesn't even demand a loaf of bread, but is content with a few small crumbs from the table. Anything she receives from Jesus will be a redemptive gift to an undeserving outsider. But isn't that the gospel message? Jesus would eventually die, be buried, and rise again so that people like this Canaanite woman, people like us, who are all Gentiles to my knowledge, who had no right to the table, could have a place to eat and fellowship with God himself. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, Jesus made it so that Gentiles who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants, in other words, who had no right to speak to Jesus, who were without hope and had no God in the world, that we might be brought near by the blood of Christ. Everything we Gentiles have, everything the Jews have, even our seat at the table is a gift sourced in Jesus's goodness and grace. My friends, 
Do you snub the crumbs that Jesus gave you in 2020? Oh my goodness, he's given us far more than crumbs, hasn't he? I mean, Ephesians 2 talks about the abundant grace that we will receive forever, right? We, the, the knowledge of what we had in Jesus didn't change in 2020. We still have eternal life. We have a place and a seat at the right hand of God together with Christ. We have the promise of resurrection. Though we may die from COVID, though we may die from a heart attack, though we may die in a car wreck, we still have life and life abundantly. None of that changed. Oh, but I couldn't see my friends. My friends, when Jesus gives you bread from the table, do you gripe at the crumbs, knowing that even the crumbs is amazing grace? I don't know what you expect from 2021. It's probably not going to be that much better than 2020. And even if it does get better, what's better about it? The kingdom's still not fully recognized here on earth, and Jesus still hasn't come yet. I don't know how much better we expect it to get. We may be eating crumbs for a while. Praise God. Eating crumbs means that we're seated at the table. My friends, I hope that your resilient faith leads you to have humble gratitude as you continue to trust in Jesus. The grace of having a seat at the table is enough to lower the head of the proudest person and raise the head of the humblest beggar. My friends, you sit at that table, humble yourself. Humble person, you sit at that table, raise your head in gratitude. So then, Let us return to the main question. Just how does one get a place at the Messiah's table? The Canaanite woman in Tyre shows us it's not where you live, who you are, what you do, what you have, what you know. It is by faith that one receives bread from the king's table. Reservations at the king's feast are made only by faith in Jesus Are you hoping that your place is secured because of something else? Are you hoping that in the end, it will be how great you were in life, at how good you were to others, at how nice you were, at your taxpaying faithfulness? Are you hoping that it's because of the career that you worked, the stuff that you have, that maybe, maybe... Your spot's reserved because of all of that. And I can tell you that holding on to those things will lead to only finding out that you don't have a spot at the table. Everyone comes into the kingdom by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. You hold on to other things, you won't fit through the door. It's narrow. You must let others go. And you must have a resilient, steady, secure Faith in Jesus. My friends, if 2021 is worse than 2020, will you still trust in your Savior as the only one who can give you bread? Or will you hope that 2022 will bring another Messiah? 
Trust in Jesus. Trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you for the grace that you have given us in Jesus. We thank you for even the crumbs of the kingdom's table. And Father, we receive even the crumbs as a remarkable provision and gift of your love and grace. Lord, let us be like this Canaanite woman in Tyre who knows that even if Jesus himself were to be silent, even if Jesus himself said no to our prayers and said not yet, that we would continue to come steadily, come faithfully. If the front door shut, the back door shut, the windows locked, Lord, help us to scratch our way through the roof to come to Jesus in 2021. Because where else can we go, Lord? And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.